Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast this week, David Law, is a physician. In 2019, he became the father of a child with a rare neurological condition that his geneticist described as life-limiting. In this podcast, David Law describes his journey with that condition and what has made a difference to him and his family. Here to share his story is David Law. David, you're very welcome to this call. I'm thrilled to be spending time with you today. I want to start with some of your backstory. Now, I understand that you're a physician. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What kind of physician and where did you work and and are you still working? Thank you so much, Moyes. So I am David Law and I'm an internal medicine physician. I graduated from the University of California at Davis in 2008 and did my internal medicine residency at Harvard UCLA in uh, Southern California. And I've been working as a hospital physician for close to a decade now. It's kind of funny a time passed like that. But in that time, you know, it's been quite tumultuous as, of course, the recent pandemic and everything, you know, hospital medicine has become quite, quite a, quite a hot field, you know, with everything going on. You also married a doctor. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. My wife, Vina, is a uh, developmental pediatrician. And we met when we were in training together. So she's wonderful. And she practices here in Southern California as well. That's quite important because as the story unfolds, the fact that you're both doctors, I think, is, is a very important part of that. So tell us about the birth of your beautiful daughter, Violet. When did that happen? And what were your feelings and thoughts about that at that time? My wife and I, we had, were in the later parts of our training by the time that we met and got married and such. So when Violet came along, we were excited to finally start our lives and start our families. And so she was born on June 11, 2019. That's right, you know, right right there at the beginning of the pandemic, right, right before the pandemic. So she was right before all this started going crazy, you know. What was she like when she was born? She was lovely. We were both going through a time in our lives where we had settled into our careers and uh, things were, were, you know, were hitting a stride. And, you know, Violet came out beautiful and healthy and no real issues, you know. The first six, seven months were fine without problems. We, you know, we, my wife and I had a pretty good balance of work and, and good support of family around here. So everything was okay. We had no idea that anything could be wrong or could possibly cloud this, this perfect picture. The interesting thing is that you're both doctors. So at what point did you feel, and particularly at what point did Vina feel, that something wasn't quite right? Uh, and this is this is all credit to my wife. You know, she, she definitely saw that things weren't progressing, you know, um, definitely missing certain milestones, certainly like uh, noticing that Violet was having a lot of laxity and like a lot of a low tone throughout her body. That was some of the first indicators. I think Vina was probably the most realistic about the whole thing because she obviously had all this experience and herself not only being a pediatrician, but being in the developmental world, these were very obvious things that were not happening with our with our own child. So as that progressed, you know, it became to a point that even I couldn't ignore it anymore. And what happened eventually was that about 18 months or so, Violet had her first seizure. Came out of nowhere, she didn't really seem sick or anything, but one morning, we woke up and all of a sudden she had this kind of like whole body tonic clonic type seizure lasting a few 
probably probably a few seconds, and it really was really scary. At that point, thus began a pretty much a diagnostic odyssey that I'm learning that a lot of parents with rare disease kind of go through when when the first symptom starts going wrong. You know, I, and I think probably at that point the objective side kind of took over. I mean, there's a lot of fear and all that, but Vina and I, we were both pretty. We were very scared, but we were all pretty good about like, like turning, it, turning it on objectively and where to go and who to talk to and what testing to be done. So I think the first couple of things were very, very scary, you know, and very heartbreaking. We had an MRI of her brain that first month that she had the seizure and it immediately noted that at 18 months, she had a lack of myelination in parts of her brain that indicated lack of normal development. And after that, more and more testing came down the line. Finally, the genetics came back, and that's when we found that she had a um, leukodystrophy known as GM1 gangliosidosis. And that was truly, uh, well, you know, I won't lie, it was very, it's very huge events in both of our lives and, and devastating for the, for the family, you know, having that diagnosis. I want to explore this a little bit with you, David, because being doctors, you will be very familiar with healthcare and how healthcare responds. And you know there is a technical side, but there's also another side of healthcare, which is the caring side, the side that makes you feel safe, the side that makes you feel seen and heard. Did you, you experience the technical side? You've described it, the MRIs and the, the genetic testing, etc. Did you experience the caring side? And if you did, what was that like? That's a wonderful point. You know, I think, you know, I think a step back because I did say that me and Vina could turn on the side and become doctors, but you're right. It took a second for us to really take a step back and really connect emotionally to what was going on with us. I mean, our whole paths, our whole fates and everything changed in the blink of an eye. We were approached with uh, palliative care services, supportive care services in both of our groups, which were, which is very well needed. And, uh, you know, we, we both are very well aware of the whole palliative care philosophy thus we were very open to it and i can imagine a lot of families adjusting to these kind of things don't know very scared by the system but we were actually approached by these very compassionate teams that were able to provide us with access to counseling resources and medical equipment that needed to be to be done we can say that our experiences were pretty positive in the medical world going through the whole system and you know i won't lie part of it was having that health literacy or that health knowledge um, and knowing how to go to next we knew what steps probably needed to be taken next logically. And two, the providers on the other end knew that we were doctors. And thus, there was that kind of exchange of more almost collegial as opposed to just patient doctor. Even though we try to keep it as separate as possible, you can't help but let the technical blend in to that area sometimes. Um, but we were met with a lot of compassion along the way. And a lot of people, I mean, and, and this is something that's also with rare disease, it's kind of a little morbid, but the more compassion you, you, see, you see along this journey, you kind of realize maybe the more devastating the diagnosis is going to be. And that's what it ended up turning, turning out to be. How did that compassion manifest? And, and I asked that question because, to me, medicine can change the way it responds to people, not necessarily by retraining doctors or by the, increasing the technical know-how but by the little things that we can do and say that could make somebody feel that you're walking the walk with them. What, what was that experience mm. like? 
as a hospitalist, you know, uh, we, we deal with end of life talks. In, in fact, I'm usually the one leading the end of life talk. And so it's kind of funny. I almost saw myself kind of trying to step behind the curtain. Like, what am I going to say at this point? And it was, it was maddening almost to go to that route. And really in that time, it was kind of a blur. And I, I'd be lying to say I had a clear picture of what was really going on. But I will say things that did stick out to me were, were just little things, you know, that, that showed that someone was actually listening to the person behind me. And I'll say this. The very day, the day that I got, we got the diagnosis, we were on the phone with the geneticist and, you know, we've been waiting on the news for months and all of a sudden geneticist starts the meeting and we can tell it's not going to be a good diagnosis. And I can't remember exactly what she said, but I do remember her saying, instead of saying it was like a fatal disease or a terminal disease, she said the term life limiting. And even though it was a devastating thing when you, you know, when you realize it, just the fact that that wording was there and the fact that she thought about how to deliver it you know it helped it helped so much that i think about it now when the beginning of this long journey that happened like that even that very beginning of it wasn't just like oh by the way here's hospital scare end of life that's the end of it even the very beginnings of it were treated with just that 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 small notion of like you know what life limiting but let's you know let's not go be doom and gloom all of a sudden let's you know let's be solution oriented and figure things out so I, I think that's how the, the, the that's the tip of the iceberg, of course. And then throughout the ways, various providers and physicians would find ways to like not focus on the, the the terminal nature of it, but hey, this is what we can do. This is what progress we're making, and this is what the next steps are. And you know, I think we felt that definitely going forwards, especially as we you know met other therapists and people along the journey. What about things like the nonverbals? Were there anything? about the nonverbal communication that stood out to you? Because one of the things we don't do well in medicine is we don't, we don't pivot our bodies to face the patient. We don't make eye contact as much mm. as we should, or we make too much eye contact. It depends on the circumstance. What was it like for you? You know, when you have a special child like this, people often don't know how to look at you. And it's something that I got used to after a while. Even people you know all your life, all of a sudden you have the circumstance about you. Even other physicians that we've met, that we've known, they look at you and they don't quite know how to talk to you. And they don't know whether it's like, okay, should I say this? Or are you really sensitive? Whatever. And I think when you talk about the nonverbal communications and the, the ways that we could perceive this compassion understanding were those who like, maybe they didn't know what to say, but at the same time, they showed up, right? They, I don't know, they gave a call, they, they paid a visit or they brought groceries or something along that way. Uh, with the providers in the healthcare field, yeah, it would be the the nurses who took the extra time to check on us when whenever we were in the hospital. We were at the UCLA here in Southern California for um, a hospitalization, and we had medical residents and students stop on by just to say hi and like you know they politely asked to examine and you know see her. I mean, those kind of things that show that she was more than just to, oh my god, just be be cautious around them. They're all very sensitive, and more was an interest in her character and. And her and her as a you know as a person, uh, those were those were huge, and so I, I started noticing that there is a there's definitely a distinction. Those who may maybe not have all the answers, but were willing to go out there and show up and, and interact with us, and those who shied away because they were either scared or didn't know how to, to interact. And I think, yeah, that is something that became more and more defined as we traveled further along this in this journey. You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa.
I was interested to hear you say they didn't have all the answers, but the fact that they showed up made a difference. It made you feel seen and heard and cared for. Exactly. No one knows what to say in this kind of thing. I, I don't know. I mean, I've been, I feel like I've been doing internal medicine for more than a decade. I have a bunch of things in the back of my playbook to deal with and all kinds of life situations. All of a sudden, even I found like, I don't know what anyone would say in this situation. And the answer is that like, yeah, you don't, no one's expecting you to have the right answer, but people feel if you've made that effort to show up, if, you know, I understand how uncomfortable it was for a lot of people to come and talk to us afterwards, just because they didn't know, maybe they still like they had a lot of love and care for us and the family, but gosh, maybe it triggered something in them or it scared them or something that they then were distanced. And I think to bring it back, I think about like in the healthcare field and providers, you'd see the same thing too. There are certainly providers on our journey who became very hands-on and very compassionate and very like forward with us. And some who stepped in the background, not saying they didn't do their jobs, but they weren't the, the, the ones that we were, thought would, would carry us the, the way. So it was definitely, aside from a hierarchy reorganization in our lives from a medical standpoint, it was also a very big social uh, uh, rearrangement of things. And I, that's, uh, and I, as I met more rare disease parents, you know, I, I realized that was kind of a common thread. Like, yeah, you know what? These situations change and relationships with other people change uh, as you go. I'm sure you were asked an awful lot about your daughter and how she was doing and how she was progressing. Was she showing any changes, etc.? Did anyone ask you and your wife, how were you guys doing? How was your relationship? How was this impacting on the dream that you had for your family and for your future together? It took a while to really focus on that because I think the first couple of months after the diagnosis, we were in essentially recovery survival mode. No, okay, this is a, this is a disease with no cure. So, okay, call every academic center, then figure out Chuck, all these kind of things. And so it was very easy to push the personal things and the relationships to the back, to the back of our minds. Until, of course, it forces the issue to yourself, you know, like unless something bubbles up and you can no longer push it down. And that point came for us probably, I don't know, several months into the level where we we realized, hey, in order to take the best care of Violet, we have to take care of ourselves. I would say that we had to be more proactive about it than, than others. You know, I think definitely there are resources and such around us, but it wasn't like doctor's visits were like, okay, half of, you know, they didn't check on us specifically. I know they tried to, but it wasn't really focused on that. It was really focused on the nuts and bolts of taking care of a special needs child. So I am I'm grateful that we both had this chance to take a step back and, like, you know, and realize we, we need to work on ourselves and our relationships. But it really was kind of a, a proactive thing we had approached for our own selves. What was helpful was we were part of, we still are part of the Cure GM1 Foundation, which is a nonprofit that seeks to re- fund research and, and, and advocacy for GM1. And there's a community of parents there who are great about talking with us and have connected with us with other families around the world since that time. And in these rare disease cases, these small nonprofit groups of parents and caregivers, that really sometimes is the only people in the life raft with you. They've been phenomenal. You're right. I hear this all the time, and we hear this on this podcast, that these support groups are an extraordinarily important part of the journey for families. And it's something that as doctors, we almost don't take into account. You never prescribe a, a support group. 
Is that something that you would recommend? In doing this, the positive effects and the, the outlook we've had on it has been overwhelmingly very positive, which is crazy to think about after all that that's happened and, you know, the, the, the trauma we've had to deal with. But at the same time, it's made me reexamine how we look at disease in our own populations and, and how we treat diabetics, people with heart disease, people with strokes and other kinds of issues. There definitely is an identity that comes with an, a, a, a bearing a disease. Diabetics have a way they think about the world, and people with uh, certain malignancies and cancers think about the world a certain way. And it definitely gets stronger the more specific you get into the disease process. The rare disease is the extreme of case. You know, literally with GM1, there's probably a handful of kids currently in the United States who have it. It's probably severely underdiagnosed, but at the same time, because that's specific, the ones who do know it, we all are suddenly in this crazy fraternity together that none of us ever wanted to be a part of, but that bond is very strong. Then I think about our diabetics in various age groups who we all kind of love together as diabetics. Well, shouldn't these maybe have maybe a more of a communal-based community group within them that makes it more accessible to people of their peers with the same condition that can help them bond together? Certainly, it's been very helpful for us because as even rare disease in itself is a, is a, is a small as a small universe, the GM1 universe is even smaller. And within that, there are very specific things that only we can talk about, that only really are, you know, specific to us. And having that specific connection, it, it makes all the difference in the world. It, it makes the, the, the path not be so, be so dark. How are you and Vina and Violet doing now? How have things unfolded since the diagnosis? So we got the diagnosis as the pandemic was starting to somewhat come into a, a, a holding pattern. I mean, it's like summer 2021. So at that point, we were in survival mode, just kind of figuring out what to do next. If you look at late infantile GM1 gangliosidosis on Google, it's the first thing that comes up is therapeutic options, none, you know, no FDA approved therapies. So immediately it became a lot of like just got emails, phone calls, talking to my old colleagues in medical school. And one thing that was great was that my networks from, from my past were, were so wonderful in reaching out. All of my colleagues are from uh, UC Davis, shout out to Aggies, University of California, Davis, class of 2008. But man, they all came through. Some of them had become geneticists in that time. A lot of them knew the researchers at University of California in San Francisco and Children's Hospital of Orange County and all these places. So we felt this overwhelming amount of support, but not only compassionately, but in a very real way, people making connections for us and finding out who to talk to. In that, we were really propelled and, and really hardened by all of this. And we were also very lucky because among these connections, what did flush out was that we got enrolled in a clinical trial at UCLA, um, which I'm in Southern California. UCLA is literally down the street from me right now. We, In fact, we drive closer to UCLA than we do to her primary care doctor, which is Amazing. So Violet has been on an experimental medication and we've been very pleased with the results. You know, of, of course, the disease has taken its toll, but just that fact of knowing that we're part of something and that we have some sort of stability at this point gives us a lot of hope to, to, to move on and keep advocating and fighting. So we're getting by. I think a lot of it has been examining how we react to this situation and really kind of like, you know, parsing out. Okay, if we're being negative towards something, why are we being negative? Okay, how do we turn this into a solution-focused thing? And and why? Because in our daily dealings with Violet, like getting her up in the mornings, these things can be very challenging to a child who has no motor control and very limited status. 
these little decisions are all make all the difference in the world. And thus, if we can be positive about that, being positive about everything else in life, including our advocacy and research, we found has been the most fulfilling and rewarding thing for us. So, yeah, we had a lot to celebrate this year. We had Violet's uh, third birthday. We celebrated in the summer of 2022. Oh, we uh, had our first day of preschool. We never thought that would happen, but we have a special ed program here in Southern California that was very happy to take her. And we wheelered to school every morning and we uh, have a lot of activities for her. And in the meanwhile, we've made a lot of great friends and connections in, in this. I mean, God, it's still a really terrible condition. And, you know, I'm not saying it's all rosy and sunshine, but definitely the outlook and being positive about it has been a better way to go about it than I think would have been by just being all doom and gloom and sad about it. And it's a constant work. It doesn't. It doesn't end. <laughs> and that's that's the thing about it. You clearly love your daughter, and you're clearly doing an awful lot to support her through these years. What are you doing for yourselves? How do you look after your physical and mental health? This is a, a, a topic that comes up in a lot of our support groups and a lot of the um, the rare disease community people because there's a lot of guilt. Just among all things, guilt from so many angles. But one of the big things is guilt of taking time off to take a trip by yourselves and, and then leave the, the child in the care of others. And so we've been very aware of that. Uh, we've been so fortunate that my family and, and, and Venus' family are really close by that we always have someone helping out with Violet. So that has afforded us a lot of time to, you know, go out for dinners or even take small, small weekend trips, you know, or really take that time to remember what it is like to be just me and her, you know. And because of that, of course, it's a little easier for us because we have the resources. But it's just, you know, in mentally taking that time to, you know, we've done all this for, the, for our family and for Violet. Then the next step is the next step on the checklist. What is to do for us? Is it dinner night? Is it movie night? You know, whatever the else is. I, I think that has been really important to keep communication open and uh, ensuring that not only our you know mental states uh, are are in good ways, but also that our you know professional lives are going well too. I mean, we still are both practicing physicians, and it it, it is nice every so often to talk about medicine or just talk as colleagues and you know remember that before anything else. So yeah, I think the short answer is just kind of remembering those other parts of our personality and our lives outside of that. I'm not saying we're forgetting about you know our, our family and, and uh, you know our situation, but also taking that time to remember each other as, uh, as a relation to, to each other as, as people. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. What can we do to support you, David? Our listeners will, I'm sure, be moved by this story and very moved by the experience that you've had. Where can we add value to what you're doing? Thank you so much. And, you know, I, I, I uh, yeah, man, I was, uh, I've been just thrown into this world recently, so I've been trying to figure out, too, how to move the needle forward. I'll preface this by saying GM1 gangliosidosis is a leukodystrophy. It's also a disease that has an issue with an enzyme that, in theory, if you were to replace the enzyme or find some kind of substitute for it, you could reverse a lot of these issues. We've done the same thing in other leukodystrophies and other enzyme issues. We do the same thing in medicine all the time. But why it hasn't been done for GM1? Well, frankly, lack of resource, lack of attention to it. 
And I'm not saying, oh, okay, the best way you can reach the support is support the enzyme and get it through. I'm saying that these things, it's like building a bridge. Someone told me that once, is that, yeah, there's running funding and research for the for the, the trials and the medications. It's also just advocacy and awareness on the other end, because as much money as you spend on the advocacy, uh, on the research and the clinical science side, there's going to be a social regulatory side that's going to have to be appeased as well. And I find that in our situation, we happen, of course, to have that hybrid situation where like, we are scientists too, and you know, we, are, we have the medical side. But the more important thing from a parent standpoint is to advocate and be out there. I'm wearing today, I guess we don't have it on a on the video on screen, but this is my Cure GM1 Foundation shirt. I'm a board member of the uh, Cure GM1 Foundation, which is the only nonprofit dedicated to uh, GM1 research and advocacy. And in that role, in the last couple of months, man, I've been exposed to just learning about the, the, the biopharma world and how this all works and who we talk to, FDA officials and other people who face similar challenges. So the best way I think uh, your listeners can support is to follow us. And one, know that there is a disease called GM1 gangliosidosis. As simple as that is, like, yes, there is a, neuro, a neurologic degenerative disease called GM1 gangliosidosis. As simple as that is, if people don't recognize the disease, then no funding is going to go towards that. The second thing is, is follow us. We are at uh, curegm1.org. That's the GM1 Foundation. And I'm also on Facebook, a cure for Violet. You know, that's all of our daily updates and what's going on. Even we're, we're a nonprofit foundation. All donations do go to uh, advocacy and research. But even none of that, literally looking at our posts, liking things, sharing things, telling your doctors about it. I'm fortunate in my roles and also in Vina's roles that we're both part of large medical groups that we've been able to distribute information about this and, you know, tell our pediatricians, hey, guys, by the way, if you see a child with low tone, don't forget about what happened to us. And that advocacy is is worth so much. This identify, identifying early intervention, it could change. It can change so much. We've been so blessed. have the benefits of parents from the QGM Foundation. There's a woman named Christine Wagoner, the president, whose own daughter was diagnosed with it about 10 years ago. But the advances and the advocacy they've, she and her group have put forward, we have been able to take advantage of with Violet because the clinical trial in UCLA had a spot for GM1 kids and a lot of advocacy has opened the doors for us. So, I mean, I can only imagine that now it's up to us to pass the buck forward and then move, move it towards the goalposts so kids come down the, the pipeline in the future will have more therapeutic options. So, Advocate, advocate, advocate. That's what I, I can say. I, I have, I would give you guys bumper stickers, but I don't know where they all went. I had a whole bunch of like swag and stuff to, to hand out, but uh, that's the best thing I can do to, to support us. Consider it done, David. Now I want to pivot a little bit more. I know that you're a filmmaker. Oh man, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> tell us about that. Okay, I'm going to do fun, the fun stuff. I'm going to do fun stuff. Okay, so for all of this, oh man, I, so... I grew up in Southern California. I was a I was a kid of Hollywood, man. I I, I grew up watching all those big blockbusters, Indiana Jones, uh, Jurassic Park, all of that. And I grew up here in Southern California, just a hop, skip, and away from UCLA and USC. My high school, growing up, was the high school they filmed Buffy the Vampire Slayer at. A lot of my friends and family were in the entertainment industry, and so I kind of always grew up, you know, having an idea of you know wanting to have film or something. And I never quite pursued it because you know the, the doctor thing got in the way. But um, I always kept a keen eye on it. Turned out a lot of my friends here in L.A., as, you know, I pursued medicine, they kept on going towards the creative arts. A lot of them became production assistants, a couple of directors, 
some visual effects artist. And so I remember, even though I was in um, Sacramento for grad school, every summer I'd come down and just be engulfed in this creative world and always like be around screenwriters and film people and stuff in little bits, but it was, it's cool being around it. So I always swore when I when I would be a little more stable uh, and you know you know good in my professional life, I would branch out and continue that that field. So in 2018, which is, well, see, now I think about everything in pre- and post-pandemic terms, but this two years pre-pandemic, I uh, got a group of my uh, friends together, a lot of the creative people who uh, I've been with through the years, and we created our first short film. It was a short horror film called The Uppermost. It wasn't just like a video camera and a couple of guys. We had a whole filming permit. We had a cinematographer, filming crew, cast, lighting, gaffers, actors, everything. And, and we did good, you know, that won a bunch of small horror awards. And and then uh, in 2019, uh, one of my things that I'm also passionate about is is burnout. You know, funny enough with all this, you know, I'd also look at transition burnout. We made a short film called Code, C-O-D-E, it's on YouTube. Uh, it's about physician burnout. Uh, it was a, a fictional tale. We filmed it on a bunch of sound stages here in Southern California. But it was, uh, you know, I guess our little, our little, our, uh, our, our story about uh, it, it, the story is about a resident who's going through a, the toughest call night of her life. And I was focusing on that internal struggle that we all go through in medical training that is not necessarily with the patient, but that internal dialogue that goes on with the stress of residency and all that. Yeah, that was a great project too. So I was really pressing all this film stuff really uh, straightforward. And then, of course, the, the, the events happened and, and I'm on this path now. That's not to say, of course, my film path is not over and i that's definitely thing i'm now seeing a way perhaps integrate the rare disease world film and medicine all into one just haven't quite put it all there together yet it's all it's all there somewhere gonna sit down and kind of figure it all out but yeah it's, it's a great it's a great hobby I, I, I could talk film for hours i mean i have a whole i have a whole room here movie posters and scripts and stuff that i i love uh, looking at <laughs> Absolutely love it. And it's astonishing to me that I, in the course of the time I've been doing these podcasts, the number of clinicians who are creatives is, is extraordinary. It wasn't something I was expecting. Many of them are, as mm. you say, filmmakers, cartoonists. Some of them are podcasters. Mm. Some of them do all kinds of drawing and all kinds of other things. And yeah. it is such an important part of who we are because that creativity is what seems to get forgotten in medical school. And yet right. it is the thing that helps us survive a career in medicine, I think. You know, it's funny. Like I, I think back to the very first days of medical school when we were first learning how to take a history in physical. And that's it, isn't it? You learn how to take a history in physical. The very first lessons of medicine are learning to take a narrative. And what is a narrative but someone's story of what happened? And I think that kind of developed as I, as I, you know, I saw as I developed my medical path, learning people's histories and stories. It became easier for me to relate to people medically, and, and I saw their life and their diagnosis as a story, as opposed to just cold hard facts on a, on a screen, on, on on a page. And I think that's where the creative part of medicine comes in, because on screen you're trying to capture a story. Where better stories than they are at the bedside when you're talking to these people and their real life fears and their events. So I see that. I think definitely in, even in my practice now, there's a few of us who are true artists who like you know will have lunch together and be like you know. We'll, well, to put aside the cardiology gown or put aside the surgeon gown and go, okay, guys, let's talk about my film or whatever, because, you know, that, that narrative creative side is still there firing this thing, this wing for a way to, a way to come out. 
I suspect this may be another way for you to connect with that community out there who will show you all the support that you need. They are also Mm. interested in this whole issue of burnout, this whole issue of taking the narrative, in other words, learning the script that is part of the film that is in the consultation. That's right. David Law, it's been an absolute joy spending time with you. We're sending you an awful, you, Avina and Violet, a lot of love here from Australia. We look forward to hearing of your success and finding a cure for this or whatever path it takes and bringing you some peace and happiness in the years ahead. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. So wonderful to be on and peace and love to everyone out there. I I went to Australia when I was in seventh grade to play at the Sydney Opera House. I remember that for an orchestra trip, but I haven't been back. I would love to to come and visit. So, <laughs> The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>